to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm here, as always, with Lee Johnson and Jason Reed. Jason, let me start with you. What are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving? I'm going to have a Negroni. Nice. Because I just realized that five years ago, I was in Italy around this time. Oh. And I'm going to rave about the novel Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. The great novel science fiction about a not-too-distant future in which the number one sport in reality TV is prisoners fighting each other to the death. Mm. And I know that doesn't sound that far-fetched, really, but one of the really <laughs> great things I love about his novel is he really, I think, has an interesting approach to how to, to write dystopia and satire today. And that is through the footnotes. Mm. I love footnotes in fiction. And sometimes <laughs> the footnotes unpack details about the imaginary world he's constructed, but sometimes the footnotes tell you things about the reality of the prison system in this country right now and remind us that we're not too far from the cruelty depicted in the novel. Hmm. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? Well, it's hot here in Memphis, so I think I'm going to have a tall, icy glass of sangria. And today I am actually raving about the president of South Korea, Yoon suk Yoo singing American Pie at the White House. A long, long time ago <laughs> I can still remember how that music used to make me smile <laughs> And now I knew if I had my chains that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while oh. So apparently this was one of his favorite songs when he was a young man. And as he was visiting White House recently, President Biden sort of goaded him to sing it. And I think everyone in the room, including his translator, thought he wouldn't really do it. But he did really do it. (laughs) And the guy is not only a great singer, but is a pretty great performer. So if you can find this on the Internet, I mean, this is definitely not what I had on my 2023 bingo card. The president of South Korea singing American Pie at the White House, but if you can find it on the internet, you should check it out. It's really great. But Rick, what about you? What are you ranting or raving about and what are you drinking? I am going to have a Manhattan because spring has been so weird here in Chicago. One day it's 80, today, right now it's 49. So I don't know what to drink, what to have. So I'll have a Manhattan, please, with rye. And lately in the news, as we're recording this, my best friend just announced he's running for president. And so there's all sorts of things I could rant or rave about. But I'll leave my good buddy Ron aside. I'm going to rave about the HBO series Somebody Somewhere. This is a remarkable series, and I am actually surprised that it's on TV. It stars Bridget Everett, and I think she was responsible for its creation. It's wonderfully written, beautifully acted. Jeff Hiller is like her best friend in it. And it just is a wonderful show about her having to go back to her Kansas town, Manhattan, Kansas. (laughs) And it's a kind of fish in water, fish out of water story. It's really excellent. And I can't recommend it highly enough. 
So, Jason, I know we have a super special surprise guest today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce them? So today we are joined by Nathan Duford, who we over well we didn't overlap, did we? We went to the same graduate school, but not the same program and not at the same time. So Nathan, let's first get you on board with your drink and a rant or rave. So I'm gonna be having seltzer with lime. Just mm. a good standard anytime drink. <laughs> and you know, I think you'll hear enough of my ranting <laughs> later. <laughs> So I'm going to rave about the fact that another boat ran aground in the Suez Canal yesterday. I was really hoping to have some more drama about, but yeah. they got it back floating after only an mm. hour and a half. It wasn't like Everclear 2 or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so Jason, I know today we're talking about masculinity. How are we going to approach this and what are we thinking about? So men, or rather masculinity, seems to be increasingly in crisis. This crisis takes many forms, incels and voluntary celibates who claim they've been denied the sexual attention they feel that women owe them, vocels and men going their own way who feel that relationships with women threaten their masculinity, and men's rights activists who believe that everything from divorce laws to Me Too have made men the persecuted group in society. These crises and subcultures are often tied to the alt-right world and at times have shown up in the screeds and manifestos of mass shooters and some of our politicians on the right. So what's up with men? Why is this happening? And joining us to answer these questions is Nathan Dufer. So, Nathan, in your piece, What Can Men Want?, which is online at parapraxismagazine.com, and we'll include a link with this episode, you begin by citing Nick Fuentes defending his volcel, so he's voluntarily celibate, according to him, <laughs> that men who have sex with women are the real gay ones, which seems on the face value absurd, uh, contradictory <laughs> claim. <laughs> I guess I want to ask about two things. One is the underlying logic, why in a certain worldview that makes more sense than it should. But also, like, to me, when I saw that in your piece, and, you know, you and I follow each other. I think we're mutuals on – I follow you at least on Twitter. I think we're mutuals. <laughs> okay. I follow you also. <laughs> uh, and I know you've, you've been doing research in this, and I feel like that quote was like the culmination of a whole bunch of things that could be seen to be gay from like carrying an umbrella to drinking lemonade to like washing your butt, all these sort of things. <laughs> and so I guess I want to ask about the logic of that, but how that kind of is the culmination or at least is part of this whole anxiety that appears – online about the nature of masculinity and all the things, all the many things that can threaten it. Is it just me or Jason is your question? Nathan, masculinity, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's basically how I've been approaching it for a while. I got interested in this because I was like, these guys are so weird. What are they doing? Mm. And I think that Especially now, we're just sort of seeing people saying the thing that went unsaid for a long time. <sighs> Effectively, the basis of Fuentes' claim is that men shouldn't want women because why would you want something a woman has? You're a man. You should want things that are manly and masculine, and women aren't any of those things. But also, you should not want men 
either because obviously that's also gay. And so you just end up in this position where it's like, okay, you can't want what women have because then you're just a feminine boy, but you also can't want things that men have because then you're a homosexual. And so you end up in this position where it's like, what are you supposed to want? And lots of cultural signifiers get pulled in to this because we have this deeply gendered way of thinking about basically almost all of inanimate reality <laughs> now. Yi <laughs> Akinheim wrote a book called Homosexual Desire. And there's a chapter in it about paranoia. Like in psychoanalysis, paranoia is the gay disease, mm. basically. And most people think it's because gay people need to be paranoid about being found out. And so there's a kind of paranoia about gesture and voice intonation and things like that. But Akinheim actually proposes that it is society, like a homophobic society that gets this paranoia, right? And so it's always looking for the homosexual. Mm. So gay people aren't actually as paranoid as the rest of society is about this supposed element of internal destruction that exists within it. And so then you get things like men can't eat a cupcake because, yeah, like that's really girly. Can I ask you a question about Nick Fuentes? So this kind of falls in the category of what I tell my students, the sort of consider the source category. <laughs> so I didn't know who this guy was before reading your article and unfortunately do know who he is now. But I'm sorry. Could you say a little bit about who he is and also maybe put him in a context? Because I don't want our listeners to think you've just found the most Looney Tune person <laughs> and you know selected a quote from him. And it's not indicative of anything larger. Yeah, so Nick Fuentes is a far-right political operative in a kind of informal way. He mainly is a streamer on, I think he uses Twitch. I don't think he's been kicked off of Twitch. <laughs> <laughs> so he logs on and just talks about his political positions, which range from xenophobia and nationalism, more broad, general, like anti-Black racism, and his thoughts on contemporary culture. He also talks about his personal life, though. And this, especially his sexuality, has been a... How, I don't know how to put it, like a, a question for people who watch him for quite a while, specifically because people have thought they have seen him or he has said that he was going on dates with femboys, which are effectively, well, they might consider themselves gay men who are very feminine to the extent that they may pass as women in society. But again, if you could put him in a context, like he's giving voice to something that is other than his own life and mind. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. So he is part of a kind of suite of far-right masculinity influencers, basically. Like, he is more so interested in culture and politics, but there are no shortage of these guys. Specifically on Instagram, you'll find a lot of them. On TikTok, you'll find a lot of them. And what they're doing is influencing new, quote-unquote, forms of masculinities for people. Mm -hmm. So, there's another example of a person named Will Blunderfield, who once upon a time won Canadian Idol. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> 
But now he is like a masculinity influencer slash grifter slash porn star. He has Mm. these classes that you can take and things you can attend to learn to develop your masculinity amidst other men. And this involves lots of things you might think of as sexual, which are recontextualized in this, like, let's all affirm our masculinity by masturbating each other Mm. kind of way. And so Nick Fuentes is like broadly in this sphere of online grifter, political right type of person. Are these people related or separate from the message that Tucker Carlson was trying to put out in The End of Men? Like, I'd hesitate to even call it a documentary. I'm not sure (laughs) what, what it was. You know, Tucker Carlson has been trying to do this same thing for like five years, Mm -hmm. actually. So I think in 2017 or 2018, for Women's History Month, he did like a month of men where he had segments about the end of men. And he had Josh Hawley, the Senator Josh Hawley, who now is writing a book on American – well, he already wrote. It should have come out recently on American masculinity. And so to an extent, Nick Fuentes is orthogonally related to things like this. That's not his main vibe. Like his main thing is racism, I would say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they get related because you end up with these very racialized understandings of good masculinity. Like American masculinity is white, straight, cis masculinity. Mm. Okay, I promise I won't ask any more questions about these people in particular. We can get back to your argument. <laughs> no, you can. I I spent way too much time thinking about these people. Yeah, so. I have to applaud you for that because I mean, someone has to do it, but my God, I think I would like go to sleep every night depressed as hell. <laughs> But I wanted to ask you, so is the main connection between this masculinist movement and the right wing or the alt-right, is the main connection there the understanding that, well, let's say first there's been a decline in American values, there's been a decline in American prosperity, and then that leads to our jobs are going away, and then there's an attack on masculinity, and so then this new masculinity or this masculinist movement gets wrapped up with in this grievance politics that we see on the right and that has become more and more public, I think, over the past several years. So is that the connection there? Yeah, it's certainly involved. As formal institutional forms of patriarchal rule have decreased, the sort of masculinist pro-patriarchy, just like outwardly position, becomes more visible. Mm. So Jason mentioned divorce laws. As no-fault divorce became popular, men took up the mantle of being harmed by judges in family court and things like that. And so we also have not just seen a decline in American prosperity, but specifically a decline in the types of jobs that were traditionally working class men's jobs. Mm -hmm. And so that means that a lot of heads of household in terms of income have become women Mm -hmm. because they have nursing degrees and things like that, where they have stable, maybe unioned employment. When that kind of shift happens, it increases first gendered violence and domestic violence because men feel inadequate 
And so they overcompensate with masculinist violence. But more broadly, in the US, it's also related to general rising anti-democratic sentiments. So democracy also is gay. (laughs) 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 Yeah, you're going to let a woman control you? Mm. Like, Mm. we only want the right kind of people in charge. You know, Hillary Clinton occupies no small amount of sort of everyone's mind in the political pathologies we have now. So I can see that there is a perceived attack on masculinity, the small and somewhat minor ways in which structures of patriarchy have fallen from a different perspective that looks like an attack on me and my livelihood and so on. And so therefore, I develop this sort of masculinist program. What I don't quite get, though, is in your piece, you point this out, the need for me to be concerned about my sexual power and my sexual energy. And here I have in mind things like saving my sexual energy. And so, you know, some won't masturbate because that'll deplete my energy. I mean, it's an almost medieval focus on where's the seed, who has the seed, what should be done with the seed. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, so you can think about what happens to people when they feel out of control. And a lot of people will develop body-focused behaviors when their lives feel out of control. They may change how they eat or when they eat or what they eat. They might change their sleeping habits. So if you feel upset that you just have to go to work every day, you might start staying up really late to be like, oh, no, you can't tell Mm. me what to do, Mm. right? And really, like, you're only hurting yourself there. (laughs) But the broad phallocentrism of traditional ideas of masculinity, I think, make it easy to focus on sexuality as the sort of body-mediated thing, especially because there is a sense that power comes from the penis. And, of course, it's something that if you're straight, women are also involved in and trying to get from you. Uh I've seen on Reddit men talking about how they try to avoid even eye contact with women because that's an attempt at seducing them. And so then they feel like a woman has control over them. Oh, she is trying to pull me in to give her something I don't want to give her, which is my power. If I could just jump back in here with Tucker Carlson, because I, I regret to admit that I did actually watch The Ends of Man or The End of Man. I mean, I, it's of course related, but I don't think this is directly about sexuality, but more about the body focus of masculinity. Seems clear, at least by the end of his again, scare quotes documentary, that what he's saying is that the focus on things like physical fitness or I don't know how many eggs you eat a day or whatever is not really about health or strength. It's about being the kind of standing guard for when society collapses. And this, of course, is a well-worn nationalist theme that we've got to have these people who are ready to restore order when things become disordered. And so maybe I kind of want to serve that up on a platter to you to like (laughs) tell us more how masculinity and nationalism, in particular white nationalism, are related. 
Yeah, sure. So bringing this back to this paranoia and fear of invasion or external threat type of thing, there's this line in Hofstadter's The Paranoid Style in American Politics, where he talks about how the man who's paranoid is always manning the barricades of civilization. Mm. Like any threat that they see, they perceive it to be the thing that will destroy civilization itself, which is sort of, oh, that's the structure of how I get power. And so it's both a national threat, but it's also a personal threat. Mm. Obviously, this also gets involved in the family. So lots of the anti-queer movements that are going on now, of course, are focused on children and the family and shoring up men as protectors of their children. So like, well, how are you going to protect your children if you are influenced by all of these queer genders and sexualities? You need to be a real man so that you can take care of your kids. And the home is in their minds, a kind of model for the polity, the Mm -hmm. nation. And so you get both of them out of that. Can I also just mention as an aside that there is an actual group called the Raw Egg Nationalist Organization, (laughs) (laughs) which recently published a cookbook (laughs) that was published by Antelope Hill, which is kind of a hub for extremist material and regularly publishes content with pro-Hitler white nationalist groups like the National Justice Party or whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of weird food focus type (laughs) things, right? So like, Not only are they all these foods that are too feminine that you can't like, but there are also the masculine foods that you are meant to eat. And Mm -hmm. eating raw meat Mm -hmm. is like a huge part of this. Right. Because who does the cooking after all? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. If you are a man and you were like going hunting with the other men, you'd kill something and you'd just eat it is kind of the theory here. And so it's an attempt to like trace this mythic past of masculinity, right? right? So we're like returning to what real men were in the Stone Age, basically. Mm. Pretty sure they cooked. Uh, but go <laughs> ahead. Sure yeah. <laughs> of course. Well, we did have fire in the Stone Age. <laughs> I guess when you mentioned paranoia, I was thinking about the lines from Foucault's sexuality where he talks about the confession and tracing down sexuality. Partly it seems what we're talking about is this shift from regime where masculinity is recognized externally. Like you go to work and there are other men there and you know you're a man. You look, look out the public sphere and there are only men in the public sphere and, or all the institutions were sort of reflecting back to you this image. And now the lens has been turned inward and you're searching in yourself for some source of recognition of your masculinity. And more importantly, it seems to me, some something that might betray some trace of femininity or non-masculinity inside of you. So like your diet has to be scrutinized, your physical activity becomes scrutinized, the way you dress, comport yourself becomes scrutinized. And it seems to me that it's a necessarily ceaseless task because you're never going to find the recognition that you're looking for. You're never going to find that rock hard moment you feel as masculine. Did you say rock hard? Yes, I did. (laughs) Because even that could be, you know, know, why did you get wrong? But sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, speaking of things that are rock hard, I mean, this was like one of the elements of European witch hunts was that some man in the town would become impotent. Mm -hmm. And the thought was, well, why doesn't his dick work anymore? A woman must be in control of it and put a spell on it. And so like if someone's wife couldn't get pregnant or if they were experiencing erectile dysfunction, that was enough to like set off a witch hunt because someone must be interfering with this 
in this mystical right. way. Right. And, and someone who's not masculine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It has to be a woman. So it's like a seat of power where it shouldn't be, is really what the witch did, was have powers that women or poor people shouldn't have had. But yeah, it, you do end up with this sense of internal searching for a manliness that will never appear. In that way, it is very religious practice where it's like, oh no, like a good Christian, I know I'll always be a sinner, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't keep trying to be good. And this is actually like one of the defining features of being a man, just not being able to really be one, mm -hmm. right? There's always a sense of striving toward fulfilling something that being a man would be. And traditionally, men got that from each other. And so there's a lot of talk about like, we need men's spaces. So this Will Blunderfield character has these retreats for men so they can affirm their manhood to each other. And then some religious organizations have started doing weekend retreats for mm -hmm. masculinity, where you can go and talk about your problems as a man and get affirmed as a man by other men. But in the broader world, now that there are fewer explicitly patriarchal norms or institutions, I guess, you are kind of left all on your own. And so you have to do like dark night of the soul mm. yeah. <laughs> all yeah. the time to just be like, well, I ate a cupcake <laughs> and like, you know, it was so sweet and I was tempted and I should have better self-control. Listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Nathan, in the logic, and I put that in scare quotes, of this masculinist movement that you've laid out, I find a kind of paradox in that there is a paranoia, but it also must arise from or at least in part be directed back inward toward the individual, namely... I have to police myself lest I become feminized. I have to police myself lest I become gay. And that seems the opposite of a masculinity that wouldn't have to worry about that. Yeah. So I think you're right that in most people's minds, the really manly thing to do here would just to be secure and confident. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But instead, you end up with weird conservative claims. Like Rod Dreher is always talking about how much better gay sex must be, <laughs> right? And this is like a typical line that people take when they're like, oh, that's like the gay agenda. That's how they recruit to being gay is they offer you all of these pleasures that you can't get if you're straight. Mm. 
And so it's basically an admission of like, yeah, we know it is better to be gay. And that precisely is the reason we need to guard against it, Mm. because it's a kind of perversion of what our bodies are meant for. And what our bodies are meant for, for these guys, is being in charge of families and states, or like in charge of a military, for instance. And so you sort of start looking for those things in yourself. But eventually, it becomes second nature to you. If you police yourself enough with your behaviors, eventually, you won't need to look for them anymore because you will have identified them. And that's when you can start looking for them in other Mm. men so that you have this good sense of, okay, since I know what it is to be a man, I can figure out when the other guys aren't being men and I can use that to protect my family. I can use that to protect my Mm. military. I can use that to protect my country. Can I ask you a question? Because one of the things that is always curious to me about, I mean, men's rights is such a weird umbrella category to use because there's so many contradictory movements within that tent. But nevertheless, I think that's something worth looking at. So, you know, this is kind of calling back to your explanation of the witch trials where we were going to look for a witch because someone was impotent or because someone was unable to get an erection or whatever, that it must be some mysterious woman's power doing that. And I think in many ways, the incel movement, the involuntarily celibate movement is that. It's women's fault that I'm not desirable, that I'm not having sex, et cetera, et cetera. But then weirdly, we have this second moment where we have the Volcel, the voluntarily celibate movement, who are somehow aligned with the incels, you know? And it, like, it seems like, how is this possible, right? Like, I'm, like, aren't we actually violating a basic law of logic here? That, you know, that it can't both be voluntary and involuntary. But I think that that's one of the things that I find so curious about these men's and masculinity movement, by cis men in particular, is that it always seems to be self-justifying and that everybody is fine with everyone else's self-justification as long as we all kind of stay on the same really generic theme. And I recently saw this video of a church's men's retreat, which was held in this stadium, of course, where there were pyrotechnics. And at one point, I'm really not making this up, a tank (laughs) rolled out and, you know, crushed over a few cars. And by the way, it was driven by Chuck Norris. (laughs) And everybody was sort of like completely on board. And I'm thinking, surely all of you are not thinking the same thing, except for I like tanks and Chuck Norris. (laughs) Like, I'm not sure that there's a like deep philosophical affinity here. So how much of this is actually what we would call a movement? Yeah, I mean, it is hard to know because Mm. there have been organized men's groups trying to achieve things in law, like explicitly working together. But I think the thing that unites incels and volcels together is a kind of evolutionary explanation for why they don't want to have sex or why women don't want to have sex with them. 
because incels are actually really mean to each other. They yeah. will tell each other to kill themselves. Like, yeah, you know, based on what you look like, no one is ever going to want to have sex mm. with you because, well, you're like low breeding, right? And so there's mm. always this kind of eugenicist logic inbuilt into it about who has sex with whom for why. And so voluntarily celibate people will take that not in a self-pitying direction, but in an externally dominating type mm, of right. direction right. where it's like, oh, no, the women who would want to have sex with me are actually below my station. Mm. They are too promiscuous. Usually promiscuity is a big thing. And so the combined sort of logic of it is that men are naturally dominant, but only certain men are like the real mm. dominant ones. And the rest of us are just kind of like worker bees reproducing to reproduce. Mm -hmm. But overall, in a really broad way, no, there is no synthetic understanding that all of these men watching the tank <laughs> have. Mm -hmm. But like, it is cool, though. Who doesn't like the monster trucks? <laughs> and so there is a sense of finding something that can bring people together. Yeah, I think that's it. I don't think it's the tank. Yeah. I think it's the being together with other men. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. like, I mean, Chuck Norris is his own very specific kind of conservative figure. Uh, like, I won't go into a whole Chuck Norris thing. Uh, I, we could talk about him a long time. Well, we have him on next week. Oh, so okay. Yeah, you just ask him directly. <laughs> yeah, like Chuck Norris is his own kind of thing. But the men there, what they really have in common is just a desire to be in this kind of separate world of men. Right. And like that is an important thing for them. And, you know, historically men had those kinds of spaces in schools or military training or the workplace. Yeah, or the Senate or the White House. Or <laughs> <laughs> right. Or the Supreme Court. <laughs> and like as those types of spaces become more rare, they have to generate them in these weird ways like monster trucks. Right. And so at that point, it doesn't really matter if they disagree about the details. Right. But, you know, on the other hand, I don't think – it would be objectionable if there were a group of white men, working class, who really are feeling some kind of economic pinch and they feel a loss of prestige, for them to get together and say, you know, our society is shifting in positive directions and we need to find a new place in that. And so let's talk about, you know, how we could operate in an egalitarian space and so on. But obviously that's not what the tank smashing cars is doing. And these men's spaces are about sharing and supporting, but linked in a very right-wing nationalist, racist direction that is the sort of disturbing part of it. And, you know, I've had to bite my tongue through all of this, but they open all of these spaces that are men only. That seems to me to be you're opening the door for what they might perceive as feminized expressions of sexuality to take place because this is a group of men only. Yeah. So there are ways of understanding homoerotics. Yeah as masculinity affirming. So mm -hmm. like Ernst Röhm was really big on this. It's like, no, you need like really masculine men affirming each other's masculinity through desire. Mm. 
And so if you stop being so terrified of penetration or being penetrated, you can get a pretty functional, masculine homoerotics out of these kind of spaces. But the real problem with that is, you know, the far right is not going to tolerate this for long because most of the people involved, they really don't think you should be doing that because of this kind of eugenicist way of understanding white nationalism. Mm. It's like, well, you really need to be sleeping with white women to make white children. If I could just pick up on that white part of white nationalism, because, you know, I don't know, but how many groups in this men's right or masculinity movements are dominantly people of color or organized by people of color? Um, There are some. It's not a standard thing. But there are a number of groups that have lots of people of color in them. The Proud Boys is a really good example of this, where it is like a multiracial white nationalist coalition. And really, like the way that this operates is that usually the people of color involved will see themselves as white or as having a kind of adjacency to whiteness that other Mm. people don't have. So a lot of Indian fascism right now is focused on being white. It's not uncommon to see Hitler books in bookstores for people to read and affirm their fascism. But it is like a very precarious type of balance. There's always this sense in these groups that they will turn on themselves and start pushing people out the more successful they get, the more power that you get, the less people you need. Mm -hmm. And so you could sort of strategically work with people of color until you have enough power to turn on them. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the way in which, like, this is talking about masculinity, the way in which femininity or or the way in which women are represented in these spaces? Because one of the things you talk about your piece is this idea of heterosexualism, right? This sort of emphasis on the hetero, on the other. Like, women are seen as this totally other thing. And that's both the source of their appeal, but also the source of their danger. But the other thing that seems very striking in a lot of these spaces is the way in which women are very undifferentiated. And one of the things that's striking in some of the manifestos, like Elliot Rogers and so on, is it's not a story of unrequited crush after unrequited crush. It's a story of wanting a girlfriend. The person doesn't seem to matter. It's more this sort of inability to see women as people seems to be a defining characteristic. They're seen more as something other and some part of some status one is supposed to acquire. I don't know if that – if you want to say something about – sorry. I didn't do a good job of that question. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure sorry. if you were done with your question. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly – Exactly right. There's a kind of de-individuation that happens for women in this kind of logic. And that is perfectly expected in a traditional patriarchal way of understanding because women aren't people. Women are sort of closer to large mammals or someone who you use. Tools. Largely interchangeable. And to the extent that they aren't, it's about maintaining a certain kind of status among men, mm-hmm. not anything to do with a woman and her particularities. And so this kind of focus on having a girlfriend mm-hmm. It also goes along with the fact that he refers to all women as lawned sluts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like when he went on his mission, he didn't kill any of the quote unquote blonde sluts. Like that wasn't who he got. 
And so any woman can stand in for like the woman who has scorned you too as this instantiation of a type rather than an independent differentiated being. And that is part of what makes violence really easy. If you see women as just kind of this like teeming mass, it's like, well, you know, someone's got to beat it back and it might as well be me. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's that violence part that I really don't get. I mean, I don't get anything about any of this, but I really don't get the violence part because it does seem to me that if there's one relatively consistent thing among the various men's groups that we've talked about already, it's that they see themselves as protectors, either protectors of the nation, protectors of the species, protectors of the race, etc. And so the fact that their violence is never defensive, is never in protection, but is aggressive, is proactive, just never makes sense to me. You know, when you see, as we've unfortunately seen too many times, an incel just go on a shooting rampage, you know, it seems like, what is the logic there? Yeah, so I would actually say that from their position, they see it as defensive. Mm, Okay. So if we go back to this kind of paranoid way of looking at the world. One of the things that you will develop is a fear that someone is attacking you Mm. and that you're in danger. And so you're always looking out for where the danger is, not just within you, not just looking for my own gay thoughts and feelings and gestures, but also it comes from all of the outside as well. Right. Because there's always this threat against me or this threat against my wife, my children, my nation, I need to respond with violence to the attack that's being made against me. Now, recently, there have been a few videos of men going into women's bathrooms because they think there's a man in there. Mm. Like, oh, I saw a man go in here. And they'll like go in with their camera on. And what they are doing is projecting this idea that, oh, there's a threat in there <laughs> that I need to protect women from. And they're not wrong. It's them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like (laughs) they have put themselves in the bathroom. Oh, to be accidentally right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And they do seem pretty deranged when they're on video and like behaving in erratic ways and ready to do violence. Mm. And so there's a way that paranoia is also about thinking of other people as being paranoid about you. And so they're always ready to attack you, which means you need to attack them first because they're planning to attack you. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. The direction that Lee was pursuing wouldn't be so troubling to me if it weren't also now mainstreamed 
and part of our quote-unquote normal political discourse. And I think about all of the anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ legislation that's passed in Florida, there is this paranoia built in, right? There's always this language of you can't teach anything that will make someone feel bad about their race, feel bad about their gender, and so on. And this defense has now become public. I have even a more recent example closer to home. The Illinois state legislature just passed and the governor is about to sign a bill that is allowing, not mandating, just allowing businesses to have multi-use, non-gender specific bathrooms. And one of our state senators said that if his daughter is in a restroom, and he sees a man go in, he's going to go in and he's going to kick the shit out of that guy. And he said this on the Senate floor. And so here we have the rhetoric of this kind of masculinism now infecting a more mainstream political discourse in ways that I find frightening. Yeah, I thought the example you were going to give was of, quote unquote, migrant caravans at the Mexican border, right? How there's going to be a wave of immigration. Like Fox News was totally obsessed with this for weeks just recently. But it's all the same kind of thing, one on sort of a national basis and one Mm. on this familial basis. But I actually don't see it as very new, maybe because I was raised by people who were conservative in a conservative culture. And so it was very normal Mm. for men to threaten violence in order to protect their daughters or their wives. But you could think about the satanic panic very similar type of logic and a very similar kind of response from men. Mm -hmm. Anytime there's kind of a threat that's not understood, (laughs) you get this response where it's like, no, I'm ready to do violence Mm -hmm. to protect my children when I sense that the state isn't. It arises in these contexts because it's like, well, now the state has relinquished its responsibility. Right. And that means it falls on me to have to do this. But that's really inefficient. It's really unworkable. Right. And so it actually is way better if, you know, the state of Florida does it rather than having every individual man having to protect every individual daughter. Yeah. But yeah, like dads who threaten their daughter's prom dates with guns to like answer the door with a gun as a kind of cultural trope. It's an extension of the same type of logic. So I want to pick up on Rick's question about how this masculinity movement gets translated into anti-trans violence and anti-trans politics. But I want to go in a slightly different direction. And uh, I really want to tread carefully here in what I'm about to say. So I'm going to make this caveat first, which is that I obviously understand that there is a diversity of opinions and views and expressions in the trans community, just like there is in every other community. Nevertheless, I will say that in my experience, it is not uncommon to find a kind of hyper-masculine, misogynistic masculinity among trans men. It seems to me that among some of the trans men that I know who are misogynists, that this kind of masculinity would be incredibly attractive to them. 
And I'm wondering, like, how are trans men folded into this masculinity movement, this men's rights movement? I mean, I think that in part, it's an extension of a more general principle, which is that we all live in a patriarchal world and we all pass along misogyny. There's no specific agent of it. Everybody is doing it. (laughs) And I think that it stands out on trans men because people are like, well, they should know better. But cis women do it too. (laughs) And so it's like, well, you, you would think like they would really know better. And so on the one hand, I think it gets spotlighted specifically because they're trans. But... There is some research on this, and some men will say that they felt more attracted to what we might call like toxically masculine behaviors or hegemonically masculine behaviors, like trying to drink someone under the table. They were more attracted to those things before they transitioned, specifically because they were like searching for an affirmation of masculinity that they couldn't give themselves or wouldn't give themselves and that society wouldn't give them either. And so on the one hand, that is one thing that happens. But on the other, I mean, it's hard to find a good masculinity. Like this is like such a problem for a lot of transmasculine people who either do still or did consider themselves feminists or did consider themselves lesbian. Noah Zazanis wrote an essay about this called On Hating Men and Becoming One Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Specifically about this kind of navigation, right? Like the desire for the bad gender. (laughs) What do we do with that, right? And so one of the things you can do with it is just like go all in on the badness of it. Right? Like, no, I am a man among men, and this is what men do. This is how men are. Because it turns out you don't get a politics from a set of practices. (laughs) And so some trans men will end up misogynists. They will end up white nationalists, etc. Some of them end up hating most trans people and working against the rights of trans people in general. And so it's really kind of a spectrum of both intellectual problems, but also actually functional political problems, right? How do you navigate being a man or desiring masculinity when you look around and you're like, well, the state of things is not great. (laughs) I mean, this is not a rhetorical question, but when you say there's no good masculinity, I mean, my impulse is to say, yeah, of course, you're, you're right about that. But I mean, why not look to butch women, like butch lesbians or butch cis women or, you know, butch straight cis women. I mean, there are other forms of masculinity. And of course, there are many butch women who are just repeating the tropes of masculinity that we've been talking about are very toxic. But there are a lot of butch women who are not. Yeah. I mean, so when I said there are no good forms of masculinity, I meant like hegemonically. To the extent that there are good forms of masculinity, you have to engage in social practices of generating them. And so when you think about butch women, what you're thinking of is like a long-standing practice of generating a kind of like socially legible masculinity that is not hegemonic at the very least because it's a woman, regardless of any of the other features that it has, right? And so there are, of course, communal practices of generating different forms of masculinity and you know, cis men exist in those as well. (laughs) And so like, to the extent that men 
can generate a sense of having masculinity or being a masculine person that doesn't involve centrally the policing of women or the disciplining of themselves, then there are forms of it that we might seek or we might want to cultivate. So do you think it would be fair to say that there are no forms of masculinity that are good for people who identify as men? No, 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 no. I think that there are good forms of masculinity for men, but you're not going to get them by just being a guy in our society. You have to work at cultivating something else for yourself because the pressures of the world, just like on everyone, are toward misogyny and patriarchy. And so it's very tempting if you can take up that power to use it. And so you have to actively use that power differently in feminist or anti-misogynist ways, or you have to work out how you're going to position yourself vis-a-vis patriarchal power. And I think a good example of what you're saying, Nathan, is during Donald Trump's first campaign where there was the famous grabbing tape that came out. And the thing he said about it was, it's just locker room talk. And it seemed as if everyone, including mainstream news media and everyone was like, oh yeah, that's just how guys are. And that was a sort of affirmation that that's a form of masculinity that is just what masculinity is in our culture right now. And okay, it might be unfortunate and whatever, but you know, guys are going to guy. And that was shocking to me, the way that that excuse like solved the problem. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because it positions what Trump did not as a bad thing. The thing that he did wrong wasn't committing sexual violence or talking about it. The thing that he did wrong was talking about it in mixed company. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And so this is something that's just for the guys. <laughs> and like the problem is when you start talking about it in front of everybody. And so the sort of locker room talk is a really convenient way of saying none of this is wrong, but people are offended yeah. because you said it out loud. Yeah, you said it outside the locker room. But I think that's what makes it difficult to identify a non-toxic masculinity that men in society can inhabit or express because seems to me that because a non-toxic masculinity is by definition not going to be hegemonic, if men choose other ways to act, other ways to express their identities, that there's no reason to choose the term masculinity there. There's only reasons to not choose the term masculinity. So, I mean, I guess I'm going back to what what you said earlier. Like, I'm not entirely convinced that there is a good masculinity for people who identify themselves as men. Yeah. I mean, I think that to the extent that you could think that that's true, that's because gender is constructed in really difficult to navigate ways. Because one of the things about gender, right, is that we don't get it from ourselves, we get it from others. Right. At one point, Mackenzie Wark has said it's a gift that someone gives to us. And with no return receipt, those assholes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, because I want to take my back. <laughs> so to the extent that men find a kind of masculinity that is nonviolent or not aimed at domination, there's always the double problem of, well, other people might attribute that to you anyway. And so it's always within your reach 
to use this kind of damaging and violent norm because you can get away with it if you want to. The things that we mean by masculinity are really varied. So some of them are political positions. Some of them are interpersonal norms. Some of them are norms of like bodily comportment or bodily construction. They're norms about who has sex how. And they're very personal to people. (laughs) And so it strikes me that jettisoning the idea of masculinity full stop is a little bit throwing out the baby with the bathwater type thing. Because there are parts of it that are desirable, but desire is always problematic. We don't always want things that are like (laughs) great. And that doesn't mean we don't want them or we shouldn't have them. So thank you, Nathan. Do you have any final thoughts before the bar closes and we have to get out of here? Um, you know, I don't think I do. I think that if anyone would like to see some weird displays of masculinity, <laughs> they can follow me on Twitter at NR Duford. <laughs> we'll put your Twitter handle in the show notes. And I just want to thank you, Nathan, for coming on. And also thank you. I meant it when I said before that on the one hand, I think this is important work that you're doing. And actually, I encourage people to go and look at your piece because there's also important features theoretical work that is being both applied to this question and emerging from this question that I think also is really interesting. And I don't want to do this work because I, <laughs> I, I think I would be depressed. Cosign. <laughs> so I thank you for that. I mean, I think part of the issue, is, as Nathan pointed out, that with masculinity is this unwillingness to express need or desire because it threatens our autonomy. But we're not we're not afraid of that here. Not. So we're not afraid to ask you to find us on patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. And there you can support us at whatever level you need because we need support and we need others in order to survive. And we're completely fine with that. In whatever gendered form you want to take that, we're completely fine with asserting And that. we don't and we'll even f- need Chuck Norris driving a tank. <laughs> <laughs> and if even our minimal level is too much for you, right now we understand but you could do us a huge favor by just recommending us on whatever podcast platform you download this episode on Um, that goes a long way to helping us out all right you guys the bartender has flicked the lights and made last call so nathan thank you so much for joining us and i will catch you all next time bye later bye